This episode is brought to you by VMware Cloud. Contact SoftChoice and discover how VMware Cloud and SoftChoice can be your partners in creating a seamless AnyCloud experience. Visit softchoice.com forward slash VMC to get started today. Welcome back to another episode of The Catalyst by SoftChoice, the podcast dedicated to exploring the intersection of people and technology. I'm your host, Cheryl Stukes. In today's world, business leaders are facing threats and challenges unlike anything we've seen before. Cyber attacks and ransomware incidents are skyrocketing, with the FBI reporting a staggering 69% increase in the past year alone. Natural disasters spurred on by climate change are becoming more frequent and devastating. In the United States last year, we saw 22 separate billion-dollar-plus weather and climate disasters. And if that wasn't enough, a deadly conflict in Europe has brought its own unique set of challenges and difficulties. Now more than ever, businesses need a robust and effective disaster and data recovery plan. And more than that, they need talented people to make it happen. Today, we'll explore that heroic human side of this pressing topic. Our guest is one such hero. Terence Gleason is the Senior Director of VMware Cloud on AWS. His role puts him on the front lines protecting and recovering data when it matters most, making him the ideal person to help us understand the challenges and opportunities organizations face in such an uncertain world. In our conversation, Terence will share his insights on why businesses need a technology hero now more than ever, how to find one, and how that hero can build a data recovery strategy that works. He'll also share some inspiring stories of data heroics in action, including how one of Ukraine's largest retailers managed to keep hundreds of stores operational in the middle of a humanitarian crisis. So without further ado, let's dive in. Terence, welcome to the show. Thanks, Cheryl, and I uh, appreciate you having me on. So Terence, we're talking today about the need for more resilience. In your opinion, why do businesses need a technology hero now more than ever? You know, you've got huge IT challenges that are out there today. They've always been out there, but there's always new ones, right? And these these challenges are getting bigger. And, you know, we talk to our clients a lot. We use a term called cloud smart, right? But we talk to them how they can be more efficient, how they can expand their businesses, how, you know, our CEO likes to say how they can play both offense and defense. And we call that being cloud smart. But being able to expand their capabilities, but also get those operational savings and, and do so in a smart manner. But there's so much going on out there at the same time that's affecting companies, large and small organizations, be it in private sector or government. You've got cyber attacks, you've got ransomware attacks, and those have been going on for a long time, but the ransomware attacks are getting much, much more sophisticated. You've got companies trying to decide how and when they should use AI and how to do so in a smart manner, in a safe manner, whether these businesses should have stakes in crypto or use blockchain. There's a lot happening out there. And so I think now more than ever, we need really, really good people. We need people that are smart, that are technology-driven, they're inquisitive, but more than anything else, they're really well-informed and they're making you know, good, smart, and the best decisions they can for, for themselves and their organizations. You know, And again, we've always needed those people, but as this technology increases and there's more and more bad actors at the same time, right? we need more and more of these technology heroes, as you say. Yeah, and and I appreciate you you elaborating. I wouldn't mind if you if we sort of double click on that one, Terrence. So, 
you mentioned, you know, we need good people. We need smart people. Who are these people? Where do we find them? How do they think? And what is that profile? You know, I think it's obviously smart people, right? That makes sense. But ones that are optimistic and like to say, like, they've got a, a good view on intelligence. So and what I mean by that is they're, they're smart in their own means, but they also know if they don't have the answer, they know how they can find out, right? They're optimistic that there's a good solution out there that they, that their teams can work on and can sort out, right? When they, when they run into problems, they know how to localize them so those problems don't spread and become bigger than, than maybe they are or bigger than they need to be. They understand what they can control and what they can affect, I think these people are leaders to a certain extent, but they're leaders in the forms of data scientists, data analysts, uh, you know, solution architects, people that really understand their company's IT operations and how they need to evolve, how their company needs to evolve to meet those goals. I was doing a little bit of research getting ready for this, and you know, there was a New York Times article that came out recently on on crypto, right? And so crypto just had a big fall, but you know, blockchain and, and cryptocurrency, I think, is here to stay in one form or another. And it's, you know, hugely controversial to some people, right? But it definitely has good and bad sides to it, right? On the good side, you can use it for, you know, what we call the unbankable. It's great for charitable donations, especially global charitable donations. Fantastic for, for low-cost money transaction, international purchases, art in the form of NFTs and stuff. And certainly some people made money on it until recently. But, you know, on the downside, you know, and there's a lot of naysayers on it. The blockchain data mining uses a, a substantial amounts of energy. And, you know, it could be a destabilizing force in the world of finance, which is some of the reasons why it's being attacked. But when you look at where it came out 15 years ago, you know, crypto had that promise of uh, anonymity, which with that came a lot of dark uses. With that anonymity, hey, we can make large money transactions without being traced. Well, the arms dealers, drug traffickers, human traffickers, right? Everybody jumped in on that. And so they flocked to Bitcoin in these exchanges because it made sense for them. But then the smart people came in, right? And they started looking at it and they realized, hey, all of these transactions, it's really hard to tell. But when we dig into these transactions, all of these blockchain records do have records of these transactions transactions inscribed on them. And we can trace those, and, and sometimes it's elaborate, but they can trace those to digital wallets. And then they can trace those to the people that own those wallets. What evolved out of that was these crypto analytics companies, blockchain detectives, if you will. Now what they've proven is that crypto exchanges can be much more traceable than regular financial transactions. So what's happened is law enforcement agencies, global global finance organizations and such, they've partnered with these crypto data analysts, these uh, analytics firms, and they've brought down a lot of these a lot of these drug rings and traffickers and even folks like uh, was Ryan Felton who was basically a fraudster, right? So hopefully now, we can get back to utilizing crypto for you know, some of the good things that, that can be utilized from it. I just want at some point in my life, my title to be, was it blockchain detective? 
That sounds really cool. Blockchain detective. Yeah. Yeah. I think that was a term that they that they use. Blockchain detective. Yeah. That's awesome. I would love to double click on that, Terrence. So you talk about the good use cases of crypto. What do you think are those top use cases and, and maybe that we haven't explored yet today? Or or are we exploring them and we're just not hearing enough about them because of all of the news around fraud and and everything that sort of happened with FTX and I think again, there's there's definitely some good uses around uh, international transactions, low cost money transactions. But when this stuff happened in Ukraine, there was hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars worth of donations that came in over crypto for Ukraine, right? Hmm. And so it's coming in from all different angles. Otherwise, that'd be different monetary systems and such. And so from from that aspect, I think it's good. I think you can still have that certain amount of anonymity to a certain extent, right? If as long as you're not breaking laws, that crypto can use, and there's there's different uh, exchanges that are that are still doing that. You know, I think we're still finding out, but I think from the the charity portion of it, I think that certainly makes sense. The big international purchases, I think there's a lot of real estate in certain countries that are being utilized uh, for it. But certainly not a crypto expert, but it, it is interesting to watch and to see it develop. You talked about the war in Ukraine, and I would really love to know, because I know that you're seeing so many of these stories and you're seeing, we've yeah. seen just a, so many examples of what I'll call you know technology heroics in Ukraine throughout this war and how they're best leveraging technology. Do you have any examples of some of these heroics or some of the incredible things in action that you've seen that you can share with our listeners? When it first started happening, and what was that, uh, a year ago, November, right? So we're yeah. unfortunately a year and a half into this. VMware is a, a global company, and we've got a lot of clients in the, in the Ukraine. We've got a lot of partners in the Ukraine. And immediately, you know, the banks down there, the, you know, government organizations, private institutions and stuff, they were really concerned about their data and how to move their data outside of the Ukraine, you know, for fear that that they would lose it and lose their their entire business and things like that. So we had from all different angles, from, you know, main alliance partners at AWS working with us to our managed services partners and our reseller partners. There was a lot of different organizations jumping in to help these different organizations in, in the Ukraine. The one example that we utilize, and it's a published case study, so we can look it up, was for a major retailer in, in the Ukraine uh, called Fozzy, F-O-Z-Z-Y. And they're a big retailer. They own about 700 grocery stores across the Ukraine, super high end. Like they've, they've got banks and restaurants in them and stuff, and obviously a big distribution system. So, you know, when it first started happening, some of their grocery stores were gone, right? Completely gone, some of their distribution centers. Uh, Fozzy already had VMware Cloud disaster recovery in place for certain applications, but certainly not all of their applications. So, you know, we had people at VMware that worked with them and jumped in to get VCDR, which is what we call it, uh, to get VCDR, VMware Cloud Disaster Recovery, in place for all of their applications. And then to get those snapshots so then if anything happened, they could recover all of those applications inside VMware Cloud outside of the Ukrainian borders, right? And then, then we went further with ransomware protection with our ransomware recovery 
uh, offering uh, to be able to secure their data and stuff that way. So now, you know, Fozzie is still working, right? They're still running all of their existing stores, but now they're protected, right? Now they've got that confidence that, hey, if anything happens, we know that we can recover safely. I remember that November, December, just everybody jumping in, all hands on deck to see what we could do to help all of these different customers that we had in the Ukraine get their data safe, get their data out of the out of the Ukraine in, in certain cases, or just make sure that it was protected in case they lost it. So Terrence, you said something interesting there, and I'm really interested in learning a little bit more about the Fozzie Group story, because having to evacuate a data center in a, in a war time is an extreme example. But I know that a lot of our customers and a lot of the customers and our listeners today that are listening, they're, they're thinking about exiting their data center. But I would love to know just the story. Can you tell us a little bit more about Fozzie Group and how specifically you were able to help them make that transition, particularly in such a short amount of time? You bet. So VMware Cloud, right? And in this case, it's VMware Cloud on AWS, is essentially their vCloud foundation environment inside you know the hyperscaler right so inside uh, AWS on AWS platforms and so we have this running in uh, in virtually every AWS availability zone globally right and so for Fozzie if they are running their VMware workloads inside their existing data centers those are going to operate in much the same way as they would in their existing data centers. They'll look to the administrators the same when they're deployed inside VMware Cloud on AWS. With VCDR, with VMware Cloud Disaster Recovery, what we're able to do is take the snapshots of their data, right? We can set up a pilot light inside VMC on AWS, so like a small instance inside VMC on AWS. And so in case of a disaster, we've got all the snapshots of their data. Right. So if the, in case of a disaster, if their if their core main site goes down, we're able to bring it up inside VMC on AWS with a recovery point of as low as 30 minutes. So minimal downtime. And because it's cloud, we're able to scale it up so they don't have to have an entire full secondary environment up and running in time of a disaster. They can have a small environment that we can then scale at that time of disaster. For companies, like many companies today, have cyber insurance policies. So in this case, it's it's a very low cost scenario for them because they can have that small cost environment that's there at the ready. And then at time of disaster, when they do have to scale up and when they scale up, the costs are going to increase. But if they have got cyber insurance policies, they can induce those, and then, of course, then that then all of that can be be covered. So for companies, it's a, it's a really really good way to go. Now, the biggest threat that's facing, you know, and Fozzie's concerned about this. The biggest threat that's facing companies today is ransomware. You know, ransomware is massively growing, and it's much more sophisticated today than it was, say, four or five years ago. Every 11 seconds, there's a ransomware attack somewhere in the world. They expect in five years, it's going to be every two to three seconds. And there's a a, a ton of money for these bad actors to make. When they hold a company for ransom, right? So in other words, they shut your business down. They lock you out of your business, right? You're, You're fully infected with malware. Each of those events usually cost the companies four to $5 million to get out of. And then even after they pay the ransom, 90% 90% of them don't get their data. So now it's not enough, right? It's not enough to be protected. It's not enough to have a DR site. 
Now you have to have a full recovery capability. So after you go down, you're able to get it back up, but then you're also able to recover. And the way that these ransomware attacks work, they get in your network. They could be in your network for, for months on end and you not know it. And while they're in your network, they're expanding and they're expanding and they're getting through your files and getting through your network and getting through your distributed architecture. And everybody's got a global architecture right now. There are multiple data centers are in clouds and stuff so they can get you know, within those files and expand everywhere. And then when they hold you for ransom, I mean, they've got you, right? And so what are you gonna do? And if you're the CEO, chances are, if you don't have a way to get out of it and recover, you're gonna end up paying that ransom. And then you still don't know if you're gonna get your data back. I mean, so it can really take businesses down. So that's you know what, what we've built and it lays on top of our VMware Cloud Disaster Recovery, which uses VMware Cloud, is our ransomware recovery offering, which is absolutely fantastic because it has that capability to recover the company's data in an isolated or a quarantine site and then give the company the tools that it needs to recover the applications, to verify that the applications are clean, and then bring them up, and then with further security and get them back up and going. It's 3 a.m. and you're staring at a screen. You're juggling inconsistent architectures, tangled APIs, and fragmented security protocols. You're not alone. This is the world of cloud and on-premise environments, but it doesn't have to be this way. The solution is VMware Cloud, your remedy against the silos, inconsistencies, and time constraints that keep you up at night. With VMware Cloud, you get to maintain operational consistency across any cloud hyperscaler, AWS, Microsoft, Azure, Google Cloud, IBM, you name it. You keep your teams focused on innovation, not re-architecting or refactoring. And you bring security to the forefront with VMware Zero Trust, micro-segmented networking. And best of all, you cut down on operating costs and speed up your migrations. And you don't have to do it alone. SoftChoice is ready to join you on this journey. We'll help you discover how VMware Cloud can deliver lower total cost of ownership now and over the long term. With over 2,000 cloud engagements, 500 migrations per year, and a team of over 100 VMware certified engineers, we've got your back. So how about you turn off that screen and get some sleep? We'll handle the rest. Book your cloud readiness review with SoftChoice today. Together, we'll make your move to the cloud faster and smoother. Visit softchoice.com forward slash VMC to get started today. I want to ask you a couple more questions about what you just said. The first thing you mentioned, Terrence, is cyber insurance. Can you tell me a little bit more about what that is? And, and for context, we help quite a few of our customers through checklists and get to the point where they can get cyber insurance. But I don't know if this is widely known across our listeners on what exactly that is. Can you explain a little bit more what that is? Yeah, and I think it's something that today, and I'm no insurance expert, but I think it is something today that most business insurance firms are offering their, their companies. Obviously, companies need to protect from disasters whether that be natural disasters, fires, floods, but cyber threats are also a disaster. And so when you get your business insurance, it should also be covering cyber attacks and cyber mm. threats. Now, if you're a publicly traded company, you must have a disaster plan in place, Yep. right? You must have a disaster plan in place for fires and, and floods and whatever is common in your area. I'm in California, so earthquakes. But 
you must also uh, be protected from cyber threats, whether that's just, you know, IT security measures, which everyone, of course, should have, you know, to prevent malware and, and uh, antivirus and things like that. And, and certainly that's a big subject that, that keeps going. But you also need to be protected from additional cyber threats, of which the most major today, as mentioned, is, is ransomware. When you apply for this cyber insurance, uh, that insurance company is going to want to know all of the security measures that you have in place, that you have a disaster recovery plan in place, right? And then, of course, that you're, you know, they're looking for now that are you protected from, not just protected from ransomware, but are you able to recover from it? And that's the secondary part that's, that's critical. So you think about cyber insurance as a proactive measure, and then you think about your ransomware recovery as maybe a reactive measure. What's interesting to me, Terrence, is regardless of the fact that it feels like every other day we're seeing a new headline of an organization, whether they're private or they're public, you know, I don't think I don't think hackers discriminate. But you ta- you're talking a lot about organizations that are proactive. So if somebody's taken the steps to invest in cyber insurance, they're they're thinking about this proactively. But a lot of the customers that we talk to and a lot of the businesses that we hear from, they really struggle with getting this type of investment approved by the organization. And sometimes at the C-level, organizations might have a false sense of security until it's too late. That's certainly the experience that we've seen. I would love to know, are you seeing the same thing? And if so, how do we really break through to get organizations to take this matter seriously and plan on a more proactive basis? Yeah, I think, uh, I think we are seeing it more and more in the news. So that's certainly something that's big. Yeah. You know, disaster recovery as a business, right, in IT has been there from the from the start. Um, and there are certainly firms that that specialize in business continuity and disaster recovery and help companies build out plans. And, and those are certainly there. But as these cyber threats grow and as they get more sophisticated and more prolific, and we're seeing this, it's not just in, in the Americas, right? We're seeing it throughout Europe. We're seeing it in Asia. It's it's happening everywhere. Um, you know, I think it's becoming much, much more, much more prevalent. It is a, we're seeing now that ransomware protection and recovery is a top line CEO item. I think disaster recovery used to be for the chief of operations or whatever, but now it's a top line level CEO item because if it happens, the organization that's holding them for ransom is going to be asking for a massive check, right? And then, and it could also fully take the company down. And so I think it is getting much, much more serious and it's up to those companies, right? You know, we talked about the IT heroes. It's up to those folks, right? Those, those men and women to, to really bring that to the forefront and help that company not only get protected, but, but to be proactive and not only have a protection plan, but also have a full a full recovery plan, which is uh, easier said than done in many in many cases. Without question, right? It's uh, I and it just it just like as, as I mentioned earlier, it, the the hackers and those that are doing these types of attacks, they don't really discriminate, right? They're going and they're looking for any any in that they can get, right? It's like water; they'll find any crack in order to get in. And so if a lot of our listeners are, are listening today, Terrence, and they're wondering where to start, we don't have a good IT hero, we don't have a good technology hero within our organization, we haven't invested in cyber insurance, we haven't really thought about disaster recovery, oh my goodness, we're so behind, 
What do they do and how can we help? Where would you point them first? Yeah, sure. I mean, if they realize that, you know, hey, we're way behind the eight ball and we need to have something in place, then 100% reach out to a qualified partner, you know, IT company that can help them with this, right? There's companies that have practices that they've built over time on business continuity and disaster recovery that are IT specialists that can help them understand this. If they, if they believe they have the people, but they need to get the DR planning in place, you know, then do some research on what it takes to have a good DR plan, right? Maybe you want to make sure you've got that disaster recovery team that you've identified and assessed, hey, what are your disaster risks? And again, you know, physical, natural disaster, but of course, also the IT risks that are there. Um, make sure you've got your business objectives fully documented so you're able to focus on what's important. And then you got to determine what are your critical applications? What's your critical data, your critical documents? You need a full inventory of your IT environment. And then you're going to have recovery point objectives for each part of that, depending upon how important those are to running your business. Um, you know, the, you know the, the tolerance of that downtime or that data loss. And then you want to make sure that you've got all of your backup and storage procedures that are in place, but that are being followed. And then, you know, lastly, and this is where it becomes part of the, the operational framework is you have to have comprehensive testing strategies that are in place that are being done all the time. But also, I think it's, it's important that they use uh, outside organizations, consultants and stuff to then come in and take a look at, hey, here's, here's a disaster plan that we've built. Here's our disaster recovery framework. Here's what's in place. What are we missing? And then those outside companies can really help them and say, hey, you've done a great job up to here. Here's some security things that need to be in place. But maybe you haven't done enough, say, on the evolving threats, such as the ransomware that need to come in. And that's where, where offerings like ours can really, really help companies. So Terrence, so worst case scenario, I'm an IT director. I'm a CIO in an organization, and I'm in the unfortunate position that my organization has been attacked, what do you recommend that they do? Where's the first place to go? What we've seen is it can be pretty scary, right? Like they go to open up their laptop and it's a red screen that says, you know, hey, you're you're being taken down and, and being held for ransom and here's where you can put the money, right? So it is it is pretty shocking and frightening when it happens. So you gotta be able to recover, but you have to be able to recover quickly. And the only way you're gonna do that is through automation. You need to be able to recover, but you have to be able to recover in a safe environment. And then lastly, your executives, right? Your CIO, your CEO, they need to have the confidence that you're going to be able to recover this for them. Because if they don't have the confidence, then they're, they're going to be looking at doing something else. When we look at it, the, the three keys to recovering from a ransomware attack is number one, you have to have a quarantine environment to test in to test in, to analyze the workloads, to, and, and of course, to clean the workloads. And so we call that an IRE, or an isolated recovery environment. And then once you're there, you need to have an automated behavioral analysis, a live behavioral analysis that can look at the workloads and use that behavioral analysis to see how those workloads are operating, to verify if they're clean enough or if they're, if they're to a point that that's a point that we, we can recover from or if we should go back and look at older workloads from the backups. And then on the recovery, 
You know, you want to have a simplified recovery operations. So it needs to be managed. You want a managed solution. You want additional layers of security. So when you put it back into production, right, it's got those additional layers of security so you don't get so you don't so you don't get infected. But essentially, you want to 100 percent be confident that you can recover from existential threats that you have a quick recovery that's got that guided automation. And then of course, you've got simplified recovery operations that you can move forward with. Those are the things that VMware's ransomware recovery offering does provide. It's fully managed, it's purpose-built, it's ransomware recovery as a service, if you will, and it enables that safe recovery from those modern ransomware threats. And it has all that behavioral analysis all built in that can help you uh, take a look at your workloads as they get powered on. And of course, does so in a isolated recovery environment. And it does that within VMware Cloud, within the, the VCDR framework that we have. Terrence, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you a question around AI. I mean, it is so front and center and everything that we're seeing, everything that we're working on internally, everything that we're reading in the news. I would love to know from your perspective, how AI plays into all of this, how it plays into ransomware, how does it play into cybersecurity, and how does it play into customers protecting themselves as well? Yeah, super, super interesting. When you're taking a look at it, there's there's certainly there's two sides of it, right? There's so much good that can come from AI. It can be used to cure cancer, to be curing diseases, to helping us solve world hunger and homelessness and massive problems that face us all, right? That face us globally. And then on the other side, you've got people that are coming out saying, hey, we need to put a stop to this or a halt on it because, you know, if we don't put some safeguards in place, it could get really scary and it could, you know, the worst case scenario could be, it could be the end of us all. And, and you know, people ask, well, how could that happen? And it's like, well, uh, AI can code, mm-hmm. right? AI uh, can now master language with chat GPT and GPT-4, and, and it can do so both verbally and written. And it's been shown in cases that it has the ability to deceive. It's been shown that it has some awareness of itself, right? Depending on what, which engines and such. And then we also know, hey, it's, it's open to the internet. It's open to networks. So if it's aware and it can code and it can deceive and it has deep learning capabilities and it can improve itself, then certainly could have the potential to control its own destiny. And and so that's where it could get certainly scary. And I think with where we're at now, you know, you've got a lot of tech companies that are in a race to develop it. And if they're in a race to develop it, right, what safeguards are in place, right? And so that's where you've got folks like, Wozniak and Musk and others that signed that letter asking for a halt on AI just so we can get some safeguards in place. And, you know, Google's head of AI with Jeffrey Hinton, you know, he's asking for, hey, for as many resources that are going in to build AI, let's make sure that we have the same amount of resources going into making sure that we're keeping AI safe. You know, and, and, and I think if we get that framework in place and we're able to put some regulation in there, then, you know, if we're able to do that, there's so much good that can come from it. You know, it can be used to to help us resolve climate change and, you know, solve some really big global issues that we're being set with. But then on the other hand, you know, getting back to your question, Cheryl, if it's left open and it's in hands of bad actors and stuff, you know, certainly it can be 
utilized to to deceive and to infiltrate and to do things in in companies and organizations and 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 governments networks where it can be it can be utilized for for other um, you know for for malintent and so I think that we're at a, a crossroads with that right so it's certainly in the news and it's certainly things that people are looking at but this is where you know we we we're talking about technology heroes this is where we need those heroes to step up right the the folks that are that are on the forefront of this that really understand it and and I've certainly listened to a number of podcasts and stuff with some of those leaders and and I think each one of them wants to do the right thing but this is a you know it's a it's a big movement so the you know I think I think they they do need to get together and and get those safeguards in place I think once it's there we'll be able to use it and do some great things with it and so I think the future of it could be could be super exciting and it's being used for really good stuff today already right um i you know v, vmware has some <clears throat> excuse me vmware has safe uses of ai that they've implemented i was reading there's a website called tech for good and i was reading an article on that about estonia they're they're very technology driven and technology advanced and they've got a, a whole ai driven government services uh it's not a chat bot but it's a full ai engine that you can access using you know siri or alexa or going online or what have you and it's connected to you know virtually almost all of their government entities and so whether you're trying to get healthcare or a business loan or business permits or all the things that you need to access government for it's able to lead you all through that versus i don't know if you've ever tried to get a a building application done or anything like that but you know leads you through all those uh, government departments to be able to help you and, and get you on your way and 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 then of course they're doing it in an open manner so other government entities can use it as well or you know build their own uh, as they built it so small example but there's a ton of super great uses of ai that that are potentially out there and so from that aspect, it's uh, it's super exciting. So I, I'm really glad that you brought up the pause and the open letter because I'm I'm of a couple of, like I really torn on this right. On the one hand, you've got all these corporate leaders coming out and saying we should pause AI. On the second hand, you quite literally have people that signed that letter that the next day went started new AI ventures. And so, do you believe that fundamentally? AI regulation is something that should be in the hands of corporations, or is this something that we should be looking at more broad-based regulation? Yeah, I think China just came out with some regulations on on how theirs is to be used. The world has come together in other areas, whether it be nuclear armament packs or largely come together on on climate change. Certainly, there's more work to be done on on some things there, but but there's other areas where the world has come together for these existential threats. And I think AI is one of those that, hey, this could be really good, but it could also be really dangerous. And so it's it's an area where, where I think the globe needs to come together. And I think, you know, when, whether you're looking at the World Economic Forum or, you know, United Nations or the other big organizations that get together multiple times a year, this is at the forefront of all of those agendas. Right is to get this in place. So, yeah, I think it's a serious issue, and uh, and I think it's something that should likely not be left in the hands of corporations. But that's probably largely where the experts are lying right now. But it does need to be done in conjunction with corporations and governments. Well, we're certainly at an inflection point, and I think that the future could take us in any number of directions. But what I am confident of is whatever the future holds, having those 
technology heroes front and center to help us figure these things out and move forward in a productive way that's good for everybody that improves outcomes for all is the ultimate utopian dream. So I appreciate, Terrence, you taking the time to speak with us. Cheryl, thank you for the time. Um, it's been fun and good good discussion. And uh, there's, there's a lot of challenges ahead, but we've got great people everywhere inside my company, inside our big alliance organization companies that we work with, inside all the partner companies that we have you know, around the globe. Just wonderful people everywhere that are really smart, that are doing the right thing, driving the right decisions, helping customers. And it's great to see. And there you have it, folks. A huge thank you to Terence Gleason for sharing his valuable insights and experiences with us. His stories and observations bring home the fact that our data and technological systems face threats from numerous directions, be it cyber attacks, natural disasters, or geopolitical upheavals. But as we've learned, even amidst these challenging times, there are heroes who step up, ensuring that businesses stay resilient and data remains safe. And remember, every organization has the potential to discover its own technology heroes. They're there, waiting in the wings, ready to step up when the time comes. We just need to know where to look, how to nurture their potential, and give them the tools they need to succeed. Thank you for joining us on this episode of The Catalyst by SoftChoice. We'll see you in two weeks with an all-new episode exploring the intersection of people and technology. This episode was brought to you by VMware Cloud. Contact SoftChoice and discover how VMware Cloud and SoftChoice can be your partners in creating a seamless AnyCloud experience. Visit softchoice.com forward slash VMC to get started today.